The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk. I suspect our panel know the answer to that. Uh, Kevin, do you no, know I'm the answer? Sh- don't give it. I'm just shaking my head at John Lee. I don't. Uh, Holly? Mm, hmm. No, it's not me anyway. No, John. Well, since you said we can't give it, yeah, I do know. You no, do know. Don't. <laughs> Very wise. Very wise. So that voice was John Lee, executive editor of the Daily Mail Group Ireland, uh, Kevin Doyle, group head of news of uh, Media House and executive editor of the Irish Independent, and uh, Holly Carpenter, social media influencer. Um, we've asked you kind of to nominate uh, a story that was significant this year. And uh, the first one we're going to talk about is nominated by John Lee. And uh, it's RTE. Yet, this email responds and read to various points which had been discussed. She states at the top of the email that this is our final position because negotiations go back and forth, back and forth. This is our final position in respect, in respect of the new contract. On this page, on behalf of RTE, states explicitly, we can provide you with the side letter to underwrite this fee for the duration of the contract. There was no secret. My recollection is that Mr. Tuberty's agent requested that the commercial agreement be underwritten by RTE, and this was refused. I'll ask again, who are you lying to? Who, who, who are you supposed to sell to? Uh, can I just ask one question? To who are you lying to about what? Lyle to. Lyle. Loyal to. Loyal. Sorry. Jesus. I didn't accuse you of lying. Loyal, loyal, loyal. How much are you paid as, as Chief Finance Officer? <laughs> I think that's a private matter. Yeah. I don't know what my exact salary is off the top of my head. But, don't know but I can give you. I, no, sorry, I can give you. Absolutely outrageous. I can give you an ex- Chief yeah. Financial Officer of RT can't tell us what he's paid. Am I supposed to buy that? Uh, I'd like everybody here today to understand that the figures and statements presented by RT over the last few weeks in relation to my remuneration have created a fog of confusion. A fog of confusion over what I was paid and when I was paid and what I knew and when I knew it. Full transparency and disclosure on RT's part, I'm sorry to say, would simply have avoided so much of this. And I'm here to do one thing and one thing only, ladies and gentlemen and, and, and committee members, and that is to set the record straight and to call out some untruths. And it is my belief that there are seven material untruths that I'd like to address. This is my first rodeo, being in the public eye, but I've never seen anything like it. I, I don't know if any of you have been cancelled before, but let me tell you, you don't want to be there. My first memories of RT, I think many uh, would be, it'll be lost on a generation, but certainly my first memories were uh, of Bosco um, and his, his magic door. Uh, and then you have obviously 40 coats with his 50 pockets. Um, and it clearly seems to me that Bosco and his magic door are, steerly, are clearly still present in RT and so are his 40 coats and his, his, his 50 pockets. I've heard let me entertain you, but that's a bit ridiculous. And then 200 units of flip-flops for the summer party for agencies and clients, €4,956. So 200 pairs of flip-flops at €34 Euros each. This is what's going through this account. This isn't the Barter account, this is a slush fund. Going back before you got involved with oh, sure. RT, so we're, we're years. NK CMS for uh, 26 years, before I worked for Cadbury's. Um, before what were you for Cadbury's? Sorry? What were you selling for Cadbury's? Cadbury's? Yeah, chocolate. Chocolate, chocolate. okay. <laughs> 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 Moments of high farce at uh, the Oireachtas Committee. John, you've chosen this one. I I feel somewhat uh, a bit of sympathy for politicians because the the last most ludicrous contribution was from Brian Stanley of the um, PAC. But throughout that committee, those committee hearings, I thought the, our Oireachtas members performed very well. And I'd forgotten how monumentally incoherent and bad the RTE representatives were. 
um, let's not forget for all the humour and um, and talk about flip flops and chocolate and everything else. The RTE uh, miss I won't go as far as to say misled, but misreported the the salaries of the most high profile presenters in the country to the Oroctus, which if had that been done by the ESB or Board Gash or anybody any other um, semi state there would have been um, similar uproar. But then on top of that, we had the, 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 the effect that any fiction writer would want, which was high-profile individuals who everyone, whom everyone knew in their homes and some of whom saw their careers ended with, with RTE, I suppose, to the, uh, to the empathy of some. Nevertheless, I think what has happened this year with that organisation will disallow it, I think, from ever returning to the preeminent position it had in, in, in Irish affairs. And politicians will delay decisions um, that are not easy to make. But ultimately, I think something is going to be forced on them in the next 12 months All right. when it yeah. comes to cutting that down to a rump organisation that offers some kind of public service that it doesn't quite do now. Holly? Did you watch the, the saga unfold? Did you I follow did. it? I did. I followed it. And I mean, it was kind of hard not to. It was everywhere. It was all over Twitter or I don't think anyone's calling it X, but I suppose I'm still calling it Twitter. Um, and yeah, I mean, I have to say I felt kind of bad for Ryan Tuberty as well in a way because I think that there was just a lot of people who already had an anger and a dislike for him that just really kind of grabbed their pitchforks and joined, you know, the kind of mob against him. But at the same time, the whole thing was, I probably can't, I can't swear, obviously, but it was a blank show, as you could say. Um, and just, you know, I think it's a bit of a slap in the face as well during a cost of living crisis to see RTE spending as if we're in the Celtic Tiger on concert tickets, trips to Japan for the World Cup, flip flops when you can, <laughs> you can get flip flops for like two euro and pennies. Um, so the whole thing was probably just a slap in the face for people um, during a difficult time. Yeah, uh, it's it's over now, but the, mm-hmm. um, the 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 reverberations are still felt in the organisation with the deficit, the license fee revenue, and all of that. Maybe forcing the politicians' hands, Kevin, in a way, uh, media, and I'm not just talking about broadcast media, but media generally uh, might be funded because more and more money goes to the social media platforms. And it's going to be tough for, uh, you know, to generate local content for local people who want to read and listen and see themselves reflected in their media. Yeah, I mean, the, the controversy itself was a boon for politicians, because if you look back over the year, we've been kind of limited in the number of big political scandals we have. You know, we have things like Pascal Donoghue getting his posters put up as kind of one of the massive political scandals of the year, which in hindsight probably wasn't as big as we made it at the time. So the politicians enjoyed their summer of beating RT representatives around the place. But now, as we face into 2024, you're right, Pat, they're going to have to make some serious decisions, firstly, about how to reform the licence fees so that people start paying it again. We're into tens of millions in Mm. basically boycotted payments now. But it's also probably um, given extra, I suppose, in some ways, energy mightn't be the right word, but to buildings like the one we're in here now with Bauer Media House, where I work, looking at this going, RT gets all this money and this is what was going on with it. And this is how they were wooing commercial clients that we're all competing for, for advertising and all the rest of it with flip-flops and rugby trips um, that that private media can't compete with. So I think Commission Man is obviously um, expanding hugely. We maybe won't get into the boringness of that in some ways, but there's a huge job done now between the regulation of social media, the advertising that's going to pl- platforms like Google and Facebook, and then the question of, is it right that RT has this 
sanctified position in Irish society um, that has always been said so many times it was said RTE cannot fail but there's lots of media doing lots of good work and I think sometimes the politicians forget that. Well, it's going to force their hand anyway uh, because mm. uh, they, they can't keep diff, dipping into the public coffers with another uh, maybe 20 million next year and going beyond perhaps even more. Oh, the minister has no room for that anymore because they won't be tanked for it. Yeah. Uh, OK, uh, moving on to Holly. Um, the Dublin riots um, is something that you will always remember from 2023. Definitely. I think it's still very fresh in people's minds, even just, you know, the images that we saw of the Lewis on fire and, you know, buses on fire. And I think obviously there's serious conversations that need to be have about, had about the far right. And, you know, few were kind of expected to see the capital descend into a violent hellscape during rush hour. And I mean, I was out in the three arena when it was happening and it was terrifying to see on Twitter, you know, you're like, how am I going to get home? How bad is this going to get? How much is this going to escalate? Um and, you know, the far right aren't a harmless group of conspiracy nuts. These events were, you know, the end of years of complacency towards the far right in Ireland, I think, from the government. There's a lot of people who've been flagging this. I think post-pandemic, there was a lot of antisocial behaviour that wasn't taken seriously enough. Um, and the thing about them is they, they're almost like this army that are kind of ready to take instructions. And it's like, meet at the spire and we're going to do this. And people might laugh. And at the time, I probably would have thought this was never going to happen. Um, but the thing about it is as well that I find I tweeted about it and I kind of flagged that there was an Irish athlete saying, Ireland, we're at war and things like that. And, you know, the, my tweet got over three quarters, no, over over two thirds of a million impressions. It started a huge conversation. And I mean, the majority of the replies were sane and agreeing with me. And I mean, I'm open for a debate. I don't need, need everyone to greet me online, but I definitely um, had some people from the far right who weren't happy with what I was saying. And it's funny how quickly they found my Instagram. They were in my DMs. They were flooding my DMs with abuse. And they were writing comments under all my posts, trying to incite fear in me. And that's how they operate if they don't want people to speak out against them. But I mean, I'm not going to... Obviously, it's it's intimidating, particularly as a woman. And I regularly post online where I am, where I'm going, and that can be intimidating. Um, but I think it's it's conversations we all need to have. And I think that people need to realise it's something to be taken so seriously. Um, Kevin, the, the, that question of the pandemic and uh, things weren't dealt with properly during the pandemic, uh, you know, policing matters particularly. And it reminds me of the the old philosophy, you know, if you try to um, keep a building in good shape, someone breaks a window, you repair it immediately. If in a public park, some yobs pull up a sapling that's going to be a tree if it's left alone, you have to replant straight away. But what happened with the pandemic when uh, certain people effectively took over the streets they didn't try to take the streets back soon enough, you know, to insist on law and order to say no drinking in the streets. I know you're gasping for a pint and I know you're confined to barracks and now you can't go into a restaurant or a pub, but you can drink on the street. No, my own experience of that is obviously our offices are on Talbot Street. We were all at home like everyone else um, during the pandemic. Talbot Street, already one of the worst streets for seeing open drug dealing, fighting. You know, there's regularly videos that go viral and I think what happened during the pandemic, all the businesses were effectively empty. The tourists were no longer coming in as they do to Connolly Station and Bosaurus. And that area was completely, um, it was no man's land, basically. Mm. And I think since COVID, the the people who arrived with, for, for bad reasons, if you like, have stayed. 
and the suits, if I can refer to the, the business people, if yeah. you like, and the tourists with their trolley bags haven't come back in the same number. So there isn't that dilution effect anymore. And the guards, for all the talk about visible policing, you can walk up and down Talbot Street most days and not meet a guard from T- Connolly Station to the Spire. So um, I think it, it's too sloganistic to say take back the streets, but there is definitely a sense that the streets were got away from us and what happened on, on the day of the riots was probably a combination of people thinking they had, as I think my colleague Adrian Reckler said at the time, a free hit on Dublin. Yeah. John? Um, I'd agree with Kevin on one, one point and disagree with some of it. I, I'm a little older than Kevin. I went to school in Belvedere College um, on North Denmark Street, very near where these riots began. Now, I went, walked up through along Talbot Street, up Gardner Street, through rubble in the, in the, there was nothing there. The whole place had been levelled. The old tenements had been knocked down. No, no new um, development had occurred. There was open drug dealing then of a more serious nature, I felt. There was, though, as Kevin said, a dilution of people going about their business on a very busy shopping street that was Talbot Street and other areas around there. There has always been social, social unrest in that part of the city. But what there used to be in my experience, and I, I worked there, I lived there, I went to school there, uh, was proper policing. Now, let's not forget, even though Sinn Féin made a political mistake in putting down a motion of confidence in the Minister for Justice, they didn't mind put down a, a motion of confidence in the, in the no confidence in the Guard Commissioner, having already expressed no confidence in him. They were right to point out there was a major, major failing in policing that day. I was outside Leinster House and in Lanc- locked in Leinster House the day of the, the, the similar behaviour in September. And the Gardaí, I've spoken to many of them, the GRA have backed this thesis. The Gardaí are, are, are afraid and fearful of taking on crowds of, of, of protesters for fear of being facing uh, disciplinary action within their force and by GSOC. And, GSOC. and then the weight they have before uh, their suspension may be in most cases lifted, yeah. but they're, they're under suspension, under threat, and maybe there's a bad mark against them Two somewhere years. on their CV when they're going for promotion. Two years of your life. So yes, social problems are there. Yes, right-wing ideology played some kind of role in this. But let's start at the start. Let's police our, our streets properly. Let's give the Gardaí proper resources. They're undermanned. And a significant shift, I thought, with, with the Garda Commissioner was one of the committee hearings, he said, if you remember down the years, they've always said, no, I'm properly resourced. I'm properly resourced. Yeah. The Garda Commissioner did concede that there are not enough Gardaí. And the GRA and other bodies have said, we are not... We, we are, our members are fearful of taking sufficient action against these people. I witnessed it myself in September and I was in town in November and that was the problem. Yeah. Everyone has a camera now because yeah. they've got a mobile phone and therefore um, the Gardaí are afraid, you know, a judiciously edited piece of video goes viral and that mm. uh, guard is pilloried and, you know, who knows what was said on the other side. Do you know what I mean? They never show their own bad behaviour. Once the narrative is set, it's very hard to change yeah. it. Uh, so, Kevin, your uh, main event of the year, and it's uh, tragically ongoing, Israel. Mm. Yeah, I think October 7 will go down in history um, uh, as a day we'll always be talking about for decades to come because of what happened um, in Israel and then afterwards what followed in Gaza. And I think it's been very interesting to watch it from an Irish perspective because we're a very small player on the global scene, but we were a total outlier at the start of this because from day one, um, Irish politicians and I think the Irish public at large were warning, careful what happens here next. And at the time, um, there was a lot of pushback internationally and it has proven right now as we see 
America hasn't come all the way to uh, the Irish view, but most other countries in the world are now of the Irish view, which is that Israel is going too far in its retaliation. Um, One of the things that the Israelis did after a while was to release video taken from the body cams Mm -hmm. of dead Hamas people and they invited journalists. I didn't go. Um, I did. uh, You went to see it, John. And horrific stuff, uh, the stuff of nightmares. But if you do the, the simple mathematics, it would be the equivalent of 800 people you know, pop for, for the same population, 800 he- people here being killed by terrorists on one day. Mm. And, and that might give people a sense of how would we feel if 800 of our citizens were butchered in one day and maybe another couple of hundred kidnapped. Yeah, and we don't hear enough of Israel's side of things here. Let, let's, you know, let's not forget what happened there. Um, you know, war has broken out in the Middle East I, I don't think it's 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 responsible of any journalist, meaning myself, to take to start giving equivalence to any side of it and saying you know Israel are, are doing what they're doing. Israel fee has felt and feels isolated in the Middle East. It it, it yeah. is still but a there democracy. is the question of proportionality and and, and that that and, seems to have gone way out of kilter. And, and I will say you know um, even friends of of Israel now are, are urging them not to become an international pariah. Um, by continuing what they're doing in Gaza. And I think sensible heads in Israel may come round to that point of view. Holly? I mean, I have to agree. It's obviously harrowing to watch. And I I can't believe we're still here, that the weeks pass and there's still more and more footage of bombings and children and hospitals. Um, And I I mean, it's a difficult one as well to know what to say about it because you kind of, I I do feel nervous, but you also have to use your voice as well. And I kind of, I shared something online like about, you know, for the Palestinian people. And then I got a message of a friend who's Israeli living in Israel and she was giving me her point of view and how she felt. And and I just felt like terrible for her. And it's just horrific that there hasn't been a ceasefire. And I think that I have massive respect for uh, Holly Cairns, the... um, politician who's demanding that and putting pressure on the government because the more time that passes, the more lives that are being obviously lost. I think part of the problem with our political discourse now, though, is that you can't have a moderate view where you take both sides and you try to balance them Mm. out because I don't know if it's a symptom of Trump or Brexit or what it is, but one of the most striking things about this entire passage of the last couple of months is that you're not allowed to say that what happened on October 7th was terrible, but what what Israel is doing is 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 terrible too. You, that's seen as you're sympathising uh, with the wrong side. So there is this idea that you can't actually be balanced on, on this mm. particular topic for whatever reason. People just feel so strongly about it that you can't. But the one thing I would say, Pat, is like we go into Christmas week. I, I was in Gaza in 2015 after Operation Edge, which had hundreds uh, of deaths that time. But meeting the kids and it is really, I think it's really saddest thing going into Christmas week when I was there, met loads of kids. There's a huge population of children in Gaza. They were all pretending to be messy, playing football on the streets, and they were all looking for Princess Elsa and pretending to be Princess Elsa. They're exactly the same as the yeah. kids in every house in Ireland looking forward to Santi this week, except Santi is so far off their agenda. Yeah, it, it's hard to see what lies ahead for them because much of the infrastructure in which they lived were educated, were fed, were treated medically. It's gone. Yeah. And, and I saw that when I was there as well, because what is, a lot of what Israel says about Hamas is true, too. I, I visited a UN water factory where it was to try and clean the water. And there was a Hamas training camp being set up right beside it for that exact reason. Um, I don't know whether that's still there or not, but the facilities are gone and they were very bad to start with. So what happens to Gaza when this war ends, like all wars eventually do? 
it's very hard to see how it's a sustainable environment. Already the UN were saying it wouldn't be sustainable even if this hadn't you, happened. You've got two sides, uh, John, where you've got Hamas, uh, whose ambition declared is to eliminate Israel from the, the Middle East. And you've got the Israelis who are declared to, to eliminate Hamas, which may be impossible. If Hamas goes, there will be son of Hamas. Hamas too, um, basically recruited from the ashes of this conflict. I, I think what you what you outlined there is correct and would also seem hopeless. But um, there is never there is never no hope when it comes to peace. Now the first problem is that Hamas is a prescribed uh, terrorist organization on the level of ISIS. It is not the the, the group that carried out the image uh, the the actions that I saw um, about a month ago. Uh, you you will not be able to negotiate with them. At one point in that video, there was a man rang his mother. Uh, we, we were shown, to, to tell your listeners, un, unedited coverage of videos and radio communications between Hamas. And um, one guy rang his mother and father from Israel and he said, Dad, Dad, I just killed 10 Jews with my bare hands. Not mentioning that he'd used an AK-47, of course. Put mom on. And she was on and the three of them were crying with happiness on the, on the, on the radio at his great achievement. Your son is a hero. Um, and one was left with hopelessness um, upon hearing that. But there is hope. Saudi Arabia, even Iran, had been coming somewhat towards Israel in discussion. And, and, and naive as it may, as it may seem, uh, America and everybody else would be far better off in trying to get peace from this horrific, almost hopeless situation. But as we've showed in Northern Ireland here ourselves, Bertie Hearn, Jerry Adams, David Trimble could bring peace to what seemed a hopeless yeah, situation. It took a long, long time. It did. I mean, did, we had our troubles, so-called. Uh, uh, you know, we tend to have these names like we had the emergency for World yeah. War Two, the troubles for a 30-year-old, 30-year-long uh, conflict. It took that long and so many efforts at uh, winning peace, how long this one will take. Many people believe it's it's not for solution. No, and the truth is, if, if Israel opened the border today to let people flee Gaza, there would be suicide bombers in Tel Aviv and Jerusalem by nightfall. That's yeah. the truth. So that's, it does seem uh, intractable. Look, we will leave it there. Uh, Holly Carpenter, thank you very much and a happy Christmas to you. Thank you for joining us. Kevin Doyle, who's Group Head of News at Media House, Executive Editor of The Independent. Uh, thank you very much and a happy Christmas to you, Kevin. And John Lee, Executive Editor of The Daily Mail Group Ireland. Uh, happy Christmas to you, John, and uh, thank you. Happy Christmas. The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance. Weekdays at 9am on News Talk.